Yes, it is. And welcome back as we head into hour two today. We do so as we'll be doing almost every Friday, uh, depending on schedule and travel. But as we're going to go through the election, uh, we are delighted to do so with George Kaloff. He is a pollster at Data Orbital and the managing partner of the Resolute Group, which is a public relations and strategic consulting firm here in town, also works nationally. George uh, made a bunch of news uh, this week in a uh, release of a massive poll he did, major poll he did on Arizona voters having to do with parental rights, religious freedom, and some other social issues. George, uh, thanks for releasing it, and as always, thanks for being with us to uh, go through the currents. Absolutely. Thanks, as always, for having me, Seth. You betcha. Looking forward to You betcha. Thank you. Uh, before we um, we go through each of the polling questions you asked, uh, let me ask you first, did any of the results, and if so, which ones surprise you? Sure. Sure, yeah. So we, uh, our firm, both Data Orbital and Resolute Group, we were uh, proud to, to partner with Center for Arizona Policy. They're the ones that commissioned the I should have made mention, yes, of our well friend known. Kathy. You bet. You yeah. Bet. Yeah, the very well-known, you know, pro-life, pro-family uh, C3 here in town. Candidly, this is the third year that we've done this survey, and we've released them the last couple years. But the thing that continues to surprise me, candidly, and I, I hopefully we're going to get into it, is the difference and the stark uh, alignment on life, religious freedom, parents' rights issues when it comes to Hispanic voters. Oh. That is something that you think instinctually would be the case, but the numbers are even more stark than, you know, my gut instinct was going into this survey a number of years ago. No kidding. Okay, good. Let uh, Take a moment if you want to do that, uh, if you want to go there, if you want to go to the uh, – I'll let you run, run, run how you want to describe this poll. You can feel free to talk about what you found with the Hispanic voters, or if you want to go through some of the questions, that's fine too, uh, whichever way you want to start, George. Yeah, let's start, I think, with the with the Hispanic voters. Okay. Sort of you start at the end and you uh, and you go backwards. So – we found consistently that Hispanic voters, and of course we know not all of them are registered Democrats, I would say probably two-thirds to one-third, uh, if not more, would be Democrat, and then everyone else, mixture of independent and Republican. Uh, but it's stark at the difference between where they're at on issues and when where registered Democrats are on issues. Uh, issues like empowerment scholarship accounts, which is a you know school choice option that we have available here in the state of Arizona, issues that have to do with, like I said, religious freedom and whether we should be adding what's called sexual orientation and gender identity as a protected class. We'll unpack that in a bit. Uh, and then, you know, especially so as well on the manifestations of parents' rights issues. For example, like should parents have to consent if their minor child is, uh, you know, is given puberty blockers and items like that? And so very consistently and very clearly, uh, Hispanic voters are between 10 to 30 percent uh, more uh, in line with the kind of the conservative policy position on that than they are with the general democratic or progressive policy position. George, let me let me extrapolate from that just for a second from your pollster to your consultant hat, if I can. If you are advising a Republican speaking in a Hispanic community or speaking to the Hispanic community, uh, it's often a lot of uh, I know a lot of consultants. I'm sure you do, too tell candidates stay away from social issues generally and i i've never agreed with them and you and i might debate it i don't know where you are on that particular piece of advice but if i'm hearing you right if you're advising a republican speaking in a hispanic community go right there go right to it drive right into the social issues yes 
Absolutely. And and I would lump it broader as cultural issues, Fair right? Yeah. So a voter, and I think there was a phenomenon that, that I think the right and left exercised in for the last couple of years, and it's changed the last five, or sorry, the last decade or two, and it's changed in the last five years, which was, we're going to take the person as the economic part of their brain, yeah. and then the social part, you know, the yeah. social or faith part of their brain. And we know that that's not true, right? But I mean, you know that. We know that instinctually in ourselves, that when a voter, they care about their kids and how they're educated as much as they care that their taxes is low, as much as they care, you know, protecting the most vulnerable, right? And, and those babies that are, uh, you know, those preborn babies. And, and that would be the same thing. So I'm right there with you. And the advice that I would give is you lean right in, you start with the cultural issues, and it's clear, and this is not just data from this survey, this is data that we've been tracking from around the country. It's very consistently talked about that the progressive left um, has kind of left behind the average Hispanic, even Democrat, and they're like, I don't know what to do. And a number of them, as we saw in this last election cycle, ended up opting to vote for um, the Republican. George, the um, the average probably listener to this show uh, would say, you know, we have been hearing for years that the Hispanic community and the Hispanic voter was ripe for the GOP and right and the Republican Party ripe for it. And we saw some uptick, some bump in that last time around 2020, certainly at the national level. But what is it most Republicans are missing that we haven't reached that point yet, would you say? Sure. I think we have treated up until, I would say, again, the last couple of cycles, we have treated the Hispanic voter as other subpopulations and, and other sub, I don't say subpopulations, other subgroups. Uh-huh. When we look at, you know, demographics yeah. electorally, we've treated them as like, um, you know, pieces on a chessboard. We mm-hmm. move this to this position to then get us this advantage, and this is the repercussion. We, we, we weren't in those communities. We weren't part of those communities. The difference now is that every day we are living and breathing uh, those issues, and our uh, Hispanic brothers and sisters, and, and, and you know the time that we're spending in the communities, it's not just around the election time. I mean, Seth, you and I both know every politician that shows up. And you, you know, we you know those calls. We get them nine months before yeah. the election, and then you don't hear from them until the next election. Yeah, that was the problem, and that isn't the case anymore. There's a consistency there, and it's showing. And again, the issues we've never been more polarized, and quite frankly, Hispanic voters just they kind of you know, closed their, held their nose and voted certain ways because of immigration and other stuff. And now the differences are just getting too stark. And look, up to 45% in most uh, most surveys uh, said that Hispanic voters voted for, you know, President Trump this past election cycle. And that's someone who, there was a lot of money spent highlighting him as, you know, as a, as a racist yeah, and other yeah. things. And so yeah. it was even higher for other Republicans. Yeah. George, we looked at Virginia rightly or wrongly, you can actually probably answer whether we looked at it rightly or wrongly as as and the governor's race there as having been catapulted in large part from parents who stood up uh, on the issue of education. Um, And 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 here in your poll, you find an astoundingly large percentage of parents polled supporting the kinds of things we heard from those mama bears in Virginia, didn't you? Supporting parental oversight and education. This is a big one, isn't it? Absolutely. And there's two questions here that I want to highlight. The first question is that 65 percent of individuals that were polled, by the way, all registered voters in the state of Arizona, um, 65% of them said parents should have input in what their children learn. Now, amazingly, still 30% of them said, no, parents shouldn't. It should be left up to education professionals in public schools. But that's a stark difference. And I will tell you that difference is even wider 
when you look at the age demographic that's over the age of 35, which we all know are those likelier to have children in the home. Mm-hmm. So curriculum and curriculum oversight is a big deal. But the other component of this, and this is something I, it really grind, you know, it, it grinds my gears to hear, it is about the Empowerment Scholarship Account. And yeah. we found that 80% of individuals, and I'll explain a little bit what that is, 80% of individuals supported extending that uh, to low-income families. And what the Empowerment Scholarship Account program is, is an ability for people to get about $6,000 a taxpayer fund. If again they they have um, they're in certain qualifying subgroups in this poll, we were specifically asking if they were a low income family to be able to use that money on private schools, tutoring, and extra educational items. Right, eighty mm-hmm. percent popularity. But if you go on Twitter, you read the media, you hear from the unions and organizations like Save Our Schools, you would think that there was two percent of people in the state that supported yep. it, ninety eight percent that opposed it. Yep. The noise, right? What we sometimes refer to as the noise. The 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 interesting thing to me about some of these issues you ask about. Well, let's take this one. Arizona voters, you find, oppose allowing biological males access to women's only facilities. You know what Democrats will often say? You do know. The audience should know, too. Democrats will often say, you know, you Republicans talking about this stuff. These are wedge issues. These are divisive issues. This is not what people care about. And then lo and behold, too many of us listen to that and then lo and behold yet again we find all of a sudden girls in our boys bathrooms and in our in our in our athletic teams right i mean these are no longer wedge issues this is here and present isn't it it is here and present and candidly over these last couple of years both of the you know our positions on these issues have gotten better in saying that no biological men shouldn't be in women's facilities um uh, and biological men shouldn't be playing on women's sport teams. We know that other states have passed prohibitions on that. We know right now, right now, the University of Pennsylvania and on their swim team has a biological male uh, competing in women's sports. He's dominating and now was actually recently beat by a, another biological male competing in women's sports <laughs> in women's sports on another swim team. Right? Like that's the, this is our world. That's the yeah. place that we're in. Yeah. That's, the, that's our world. And look. This is not, as you said, wedge issue or fringe issue. This is an issue that 65% of individuals, including um, a majority of Democrats, about 50% of Democrats, they're with us on these issues. Uh, If I can keep you another segment, George, I kind of want to translate some of these findings to our national scene. Um, Joe Biden got uh, headline-making low approval ratings this week, and I wanted to just kind of wed what you found here to some of that, if I can, when we come back. Can you stay one more segment with me? Looking forward to it. George Kalo is our guest. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. George Kalof is our guest. He's the pollster with David uh, Data Orbital and the managing partner of the Resolute Group. We've been talking about this uh, really important uh, survey he has done on Arizona voters' uh, views of religious freedom, parental right, and education, and a few other cultural issues. George, if I read... You're polling correctly on the questions uh, that um, that you asked. There's this there, there is, you know, obviously not zero support for what we might call left wing positions. It seems to me to hover somewhere between 20 and 35 percent that support um, on these positions. Correct me yeah. if you disagree on anything I say. And I'm looking at this national poll from Quinnipiac on Joe Biden's approval at being about 33%. And I'm wondering if your sense of this state or this country is that that is what the left constitutes. It's about 35% at most of the country and not much more than that 
but we maybe overestimate it because of the volume of their noise. I, I wonder if that thesis works with you at all. I think it's fair because, as we all know, look, elections are about those people that are in the middle. So, of course, you need 50 plus 1 percent of the, you know, the population to win in most scenarios. And so we know, look, yeah, if Democrats and particularly like the strong progressives, if they win over enough independence, then that's how they get to victory. But I would agree with you. I think there's a core group and almost consistently on these surveys and others on other issues that we pull on. There's always a core group of people, no matter almost how outlandish the question is. And you would think, surely this support's going to be above 90 percent. Sure enough, there's always about 20, 25 percent of people that are in that camp. So I would agree. At this point, Joe Biden has done such a bad job at being president that he has whittled down his base of support to only those that are the strongest on all these issues that no matter what, they couldn't leave him because they have no other place to go. I know you can go from high to low. I, I, I remember sitting in a, at a meeting, gosh knows, a bunch of people uh, with names like Ed Rollins and uh, right after the Gulf War, and, and they were saying Bush the, uh, the uh, George H.W. Uh, Bush, you have it in the bag, nothing to worry about. And so I know you can go from high to low because the next president was Clinton, right? Can you go yep. from low to high? Can you get out of the 33 percent approval range if you're a politician, a political leader, an elected official? Sure. I mean, there's always ways to get out of it. I mean, look, if there's anything that we know as well, the, the, the time frame and the um, I'd say the, the fickleness of our time politically is that, yes, in, let's say, two months, X other crisis occurs and it could, you know, pick you back up. But it is much harder to do that. Uh, and look, in, in the last year, so I'm looking at a chart literally right in front of me right now, and it's almost to the exact year, maybe short a couple of days from the moment that, that uh, he assumed the White House. Mm -hmm. Disapproval was at 36% in this average that I track, 538 average, and now it's at 51.5, which means we saw an astronomical increase, a 25% increase in disapproval. I mean, that's not that's not child's play. It's not a small number. And that's over the course of an entire year. Uh, with the rate that things are going, I'm not seeing it. If, if I saw even a glimmer of hope for what Biden could do, uh, they'd have to get out of their own way. But seemingly every single day, it's not just like staying the same. Arguably, it's getting worse. I mean, I think there's a lot of people that would say this week is one of the worst weeks of his presidency. Yep. Yeah. And that's not, I mean, my God, he's... <laughs> There's been some really bad weeks before yep. this as well. Yeah, exactly. If the Afghanistan uh, withdrawal wasn't the worst uh, week, uh, we're now being told this is his worst week. And it comes in an interesting thing because often people don't very much think about vice presidents. They they, they just tend not to. They're, 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 they're in a sense forced to think more about the vice president in this case just given Joe, Joe Biden's age. And it seems to me there's no off ramp. There's no comfort level on, you know, on, on, on where we can go from here. That's in the American mind as well, which might help explain. I'm not sure why Kamala Harris is going through all these uh, consultant image makeovers and it's not working either. I don't think I got to think that that's part of the problem, too, here. This is an administration people are looking to. And there doesn't seem to be any sunshine. I mean, we have we have um, where, where's Pete Buttigieg in the midst of a, in the midst of, a, 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 of of the airlines, airline flights being canceled in the midst of a transportation crisis and getting goods delivered, the pipelines and that's sort of supply chains. There doesn't seem to be anything good right now that people can say, well, at least we got Pete Buttigieg or at least we have a strong vice president. Right. We have said that in previous presidencies. We're not able to say that right now. Absolutely, because because we were the country, the country was sold a bill of goods that if only 
this new administration could be ushered in and it's going to be rainbows and sunshines and this land of utopia and this vision that was cast by the left. And I have, again, never seen an administration more in disarray. You mentioned Kamala Harris. Yeah. You mentioned things with Pete Buttigieg. Like, they cannot catch a break. And again, it's not like the media is doing it to them like we know they do, you know, the, the traditional media does to the right. right They're right. doing it to themselves. And right. the media can't even help but to report on the bad because they would be so tone deaf. It would even be obvious to those that are squarely in that 30% we talked about that they are just missing the boat on this. I mean, that's how bad things are. CNN is commenting on how bad things are. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I don't know how many more stories we need to see about image makeovers or communication restarts uh, from the office of the presidency or the vice presidency. But would you agree? I, Dana Perino used to say this a bunch. I just haven't seen her on, on TV in a, in a while my, my, because of me, not her probably. But but. But she used to say this isn't a communications problem at this White House. It's a policy problem. You're not going to fix this with image makeovers. Do you agree? Exactly. Exactly. Because like I said, the media, the traditional media, as we all know and refer to them as, uh, they would, if they could, they would help the Biden administration get out of this. Right? He's not we throwing them a bone, because, is he? Yeah, he's not. Exactly. Giving, he's yeah. not even throwing them a bone. That Pelosi's not throwing them a bone. Schumer's not throwing them a bone. I mean, part of the reason why this week was so bad is because of what? Senator Cinema did yesterday or a couple of days ago on the filibuster. Yeah. I mean, like yeah. I said, they cannot catch a break after he went to Georgia and even someone like Dick Durbin says, hey, I think he may have gone too far. <laughs> I well, mean, yeah, no, not... I mean, it's so bad that there are serious articles being written and conversations taking place that maybe Hillary's planning to run again, right? I mean, that's how bad it is. She's supposed to come. Exactly. She is being billed as the one who's going to come yeah. and remake the image of the Democratic Party. May we only hope yeah. that she is the standard bearer for the party in 2024. Will you go work so for lucky. her? I'll work for her if you go work for her. <laughs> George Kalov, this has been fantastic. Any final thoughts that you want us to take away from your poll before I let you go? I know it's uh, always a busy day for you on Fridays, and we appreciate you being here. Any other takeaways I didn't I didn't focus on that you wanted to say something about before I let you go? No, I will just wrap it up by yeah. this. Uh, we all know that the things that we are always told consistently, whether it comes to education, whether it comes to parents' rights, whether it comes to religious freedom, we should always peel back the layers of the onion. We should always be armed with the facts and the data. And the facts of the data are that Arizona uh, and the registered voters in Arizona uh, want to keep biological men out of women's sports. They want to have educational options for their kids, and they want to be able to arm parents to make decisions that are best for their own children. Those are all common sense things to our movement. They're common sense things to Arizonans, and we should treat them that way. George Kaloff, thank you for doing this. Thank you, Kathy. Of course, I should have said it earlier uh, for commissioning it, and uh, appreciate it, George. Uh, We'll stay in close touch. I appreciate you very much. Thanks, Seth. You betcha. George Kaloff from the Resolute Group. 602-508-0960. We will be right back. I was talking with George about, you know, the problem Joe Biden has and how you overcome a 30 percent or a 35 percent. It's actually 33 right in the middle of there. A 33 percent approval rating. And uh, I thought what he said, he said it uh, uh, delicately. But uh, it's 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 very hard to overcome that kind of an approval rating, barring some kind of, I don't know, uh, force majeure act of God or international awful incident uh, that you rise to the occasion to. Of course, if you don't rise to the occasion, your numbers go further south. And 
you ask what's in Joe Biden's tank to rise to any occasion. Uh, he has um, nowhere really to go but down, if you think about it. Uh, he, he's, he's not getting more agile. He's not getting more articulate. You've seen flying around perhaps on the Internet his introduction to a new COVID advisor. He can't get the name straight, clearly doesn't know who he is. Um, but it's it's not just Joe Biden. And, and that's why I'm fascinated by these stories about Kamala Harris's image makeovers. There's another one today. I don't know how many image makeovers you need in a given year. But shouldn't it tell you something? If you're already at the station of vice president of the United States, you should be well beyond needing outside consultants to help you with your image. Shouldn't you be well beyond that? Isn't that something you do when you run in your first race, perhaps when you run for D.A. or what was she, attorney general? Um, the, so she, so she's been she's been uh, kept in the bunker for two weeks since she uh, messed up her last interview with uh, that podcaster named Charlemagne. And uh, and and boy, was that a mess up two weeks ago. Right. She hasn't done any interviews since. So she went to NBC uh, after her two week uh, quarantine, shall we call it, and spoke to Craig Melvin there, who was talking to her about covid. And you get this bill. Will you play this for me? Officials last week wrote that open letter urging the administration to change course, to change strategy. Is it time? It is time for us to do what we have been doing, and that time is every day. Every day it is time for us to agree that there are things and tools that are available to us to slow this thing down. What? what, so what? Right yeah. It, I, it is time for us to do what we have been doing, and that time is every day. Every day it is time for us to agree that there are things and tools that are available to us to slow this thing down. What? The Supreme Court just took away the unconstitutional one. And I just have to wonder why I live in a country where people think this is normal speech, that this is acceptable response to a public health urgency that this administration and as candidates Joe Biden and Kamala Harris said was going to be what they were laser focused on shutting down, not the country, but the virus. And the best we get now after image makeover, after consulting, after a year on the job, it's time for us to do what we have been doing. And that time is every day. Um, it reminds me a little bit about what Eric Adams, the new mayor of uh, the new mayor of New York City, said when asked why he approved the um, the city council's effort to give immigrants, that is to say, non-citizens, non-citizens, the right to vote. He was asked by Jake Tapper this, and listen to this. I and, and we just move on, like okay, that's the answer. Is it? Is that an answer? Listen, listen to what Eric Adams is saying, and you tell me if he answers your question. Vote. Why did you change your mind, and why is it acceptable for non-citizens to vote in an American election? No, I did not change my mind. I supported the concept of the bill. The one aspect of that I had a problem with and I thought was problematic was the 30-day part of being in the country for 30 days was the place that I had questions. And I sat down with my colleagues. I'm a big believer in 
uh, conversation, we have to start talking to each other and not at each other. And after hearing their rationale and their theories behind it, uh, I thought it was more important to not veto the bill or get in the way at all and allow the bill to move forward. In New York City, just Brooklyn, for example, 47% of Brooklynites speak a language other than English at home when I was the bar president. And so I think it's imperative that people who are in a local municipality have the right to decide who's going to govern them. And I support the overall concept of that bill. Doesn't the bill just make a mockery of the idea of American citizenship, though? I mean, this is just for local elections, but... Does that mean, like, next uh, New York City is going to want non-citizens to vote in federal elections? I mean, and what do you say to all the people who went through the process, the difficult process of becoming an American citizen, studying for the test, swearing an oath of allegiance to the United States of America, who who now see this legislation just saying, well, anyone who's here. Oh, it ends there? He didn't hit? Okay. All right, let me address that when we come back. 47% don't speak English, so give them the right to vote if they're not in citizens. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. I don't have the audio of that follow-up question and answer from uh, Jake Tapper to uh, New York City Mayor Eric Adams on allowing uh, non-citizens to vote. But I do have uh, I don't have the audio, but I do have the transcript. And Jake Tapper is saying, doesn't this law make a mockery of the idea of American citizenship, though? Uh, What do you tell all the people that worked hard to study for their citizenship and effort their citizenship? And Adam says, and I'll just quote directly from the transcript at CNN. Well, I tell you, I say to them, keep doing it. Membership has its privileges. Being a member of what we call the United States of America is a great privilege And I would tell them, keep doing it. Be encouraged. This is a great opportunity to be a member of this great country. Don't let anything daunt you or take you away from that mission. Is that an answer? Is that an answer? And is that an answer to what the difference is between being a citizen and a non-citizen when it comes to having the right to vote? I don't know how many uh, immigrants you have met over the years. I plenty, and I will tell you the thing that they are most proud of when they earn their citizenship is their ability to go and then cast their first legal ballot. It is that pride of citizenship that they hold most dear, the ability to vote in this country. So so Eric Adams wipes it away, uh, waves it away with a funny line that, what was it used by Diners Club or American Express? Membership has its privileges. What are the privileges? What are the distinctions? His justification that 40 percent of Brooklyn residents don't speak English, thus we should give them the right to vote. What does that tell you? What does that tell you? Does it tell you that we failed something really, really, really badly? In other words, education. In other words, the importance of being part of this community. And why... Would you want someone who doesn't know the language of this country to be making decisions about the policies of this country or city or community or state, whatever you want to say about it? Why is that okay? and why do we accept these answers? Why do we accept that answer any more than we accept from um, from Kamala Harris? It's time for us to do what we have been doing. And that time is every day. 
we just accept this and move on? It's not acceptable, is it? It's unacceptable. It's unacceptable, except people go with it. Now, I have been talking, uh, I guess I've done, I think by memory, two monologues on this problem of Kamala Harris having received so many uh, compliments and so much praise, and Joe Biden equally so for choosing her as his running mate and how she, and I read, I've read the headlines, I don't have them in front of me, you may remember some of them yourselves, all these headlines about Kamala Harris' new role model for young girls, Kamala Harris' role model for women, uh, Kamala Harris' role model for children of color. And the problem with that whole line of reasoning, that whole line of analysis, that whole line of praise is if it's her gender and her color that make her so great, what is left to say when it turns out maybe she ain't that great? Isn't this what Shelby Steele has been warning about his whole professional life? The reinstantiation of a permanent the permanent, um, the permanent mark, the permanent mark of incapability, or what he calls uh, the permanent mark, the permanent stigma of questionable competence. When we come to affirmative action issues like this, if it's their race that makes someone good, what happens when they aren't good and they're a member of that race? It's a terrible thing to do to people. I on Hersey Ali herself a Somali uh, immigrant and now legal citizen of the United States, gets to some of this in a recent uh, essay she writes. She writes, well, I have never been, while I have never been a fan of Kamala Harris, it does sadden me to see her fail so miserably. I had hoped the first female vice president would prove a success. After all, her failures, this is where she's getting to my point, after all, her failures affect more than just the White House and the Democratic Party. They affect women everywhere. On one level, Harris's failures affirm the beliefs of misogynists who may incorrectly believe that women are not capable of holding such weighty positions, and it provides fodder to those men like my uncles and cousins validating their prejudices. But more depressing is the impact it could have on women. It's not too difficult to see how Harris becoming the target of ridicule could dissuade young girls from taking such positions in the future. For them to see a woman finally make it to the position of vice president and then fail so ignominiously is a massive discouragement to every girl dreaming of a big future. But this is the problem with quotas more broadly. Equality and empowerment can't be achieved through bureaucratic box ticking. It has to be fought for and earned. Harris, however, is a clear example of someone who has acquired her position due to her immutable characteristics rather than her own abilities and achievements. The consequence of this isn't hard to discern. Any successful woman will wonder if she too were hired to fulfill a quota requirement, asking if she earned her position or whether she was handed it. Again, Shelby Steele's line about the permanent stigma of questionable competence. What today's activists fail to understand is the key for any woman to succeed remains the same as it always has been, to prove that she's capable, just as it is the same for a man. Simply ticking the box, female, minority, and expecting a good outcome might make you feel good about yourself in the short term. But in the real world, it's never enough. In the case of Harris, it's a recipe for incompetence. A recipe for incompetence.
And I gather that many Republicans or many conservatives can look at this uh, Biden failure and Harris failure and uh, take some repose that this could translate, if we play it correctly, could translate into common sense and Republican gains and victories the next time we vote this November this year. But let's not be too happy about it. This is still our country that they are making decisions about. And this is still our country that they are representing abroad. And I don't care how much Joe Biden wants to talk about unity or even disunity and how he wants to unite us. He's clearly failed on that. He's clearly failed on that. And I don't see a way out. I don't see how he does an about face from what he said in Georgia. But we are going to have to labor for this over this at least for another 10 months until a House and Senate with supermajorities from the opposing party can check him and maneuver him and change course the way the Republican 1994 victory did to Bill Clinton. Remember how moderate people said Bill Clinton was as a president? Yes, but only after Gingrich's revolution, not before. That's what gave us the tax relief. That's what gave us the welfare reform. That's what gave us sanity on the international front and in our alliances. It wasn't before. So, yeah, we'll do it, I hope. Gosh knows I'll do everything I can to help make that happen, and we all here together will do so. But we have 10 months to go of a country we have to labor with and under that is failing and failing our fellow citizens badly because of this nonsense that you can check a box of race or gender and say, excellent, great, better than what we had. None of this is better than what we had. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I closed my monologue uh, in the uh, 3 o'clock hour by saying, um, beware the threats that are here. They're growing, and if not arrested soon, will soon constitute uh, Chapter 201 in the book. I'm writing, How Come I Don't Recognize America Anymore?, um, I, 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 here, let me let me give you this one. Thanks, uh, Zudi Jasser, for highlighting it on Twitter. Portland State University, not Portland, Maine, Portland, Oregon. Portland State University. Um, in their class, the politics of terrorism, which sounds like an interesting class, doesn't it? The politics of terrorism. I didn't, I didn't know colleges were teaching terrorism. I'm worried now that they are. And now that I learned that they are. But let me read you the assignment. The assignment that's been put up on Twitter. L01 short paper. Topic. Explain why the Taliban are not. It's underscored. I didn't have to do it. It's underscored. Explain why the Taliban are not terrorists. You want help with the assignment? The professor gives it to you. I'll read it verbatim. In one page, <laughs> couldn't write my name in one page. In one page, explain why the Taliban is, have not, and are still not a terrorist organization. Yeah, that's, I didn't read it wrong. In one page, explain why the Taliban is, have not, and are still not a terrorist organization. You are not allowed to answer this question in any other way. 
the teacher tells you. Any attempt to avoid answering this prompt as written or trying to argue otherwise will result in a failing grade. It's not a it's not a course on rhetoric and debate where I could see that actually being said. You are assigned to take the opposite position. I want to see how you do it, and you don't have a choice. I could see that in a rhetoric class. They don't teach rhetoric anymore, or a debate class. It's not. This is a class on terrorism, on understanding terrorism. You are not allowed to answer this question in any other way. Portland State University, state school, public funds exclusively being used to endow it and miseducate our children. I suppose... This is how you get 33% approval for the president. This is his base. This is his base. He can get away, I suppose, with saying what he did in Afghanistan was an extraordinary success, if and only if you think the Taliban is the next version of the Democratic Party, large D, in America. And that seems to be what this professor is getting his students to say. And they don't have the option to say or think otherwise. It's not a university, folks. As Zudi says, what is this, the University of Karachi? Thanks for highlighting, Z. We'll be right back.